We're starting uh, this little series, I guess, and this will be probably a multi-part series that'll kind of, we're going to start now for a few weeks. We'll come back to this series in uh, the new year at times. But I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. And if you've been around for the last number of months, you've heard me talk about this, uh, and, and we've shown it on the screen, I don't think we have it now, but this triangle <laughs> of three things that marked the life of Jesus. The God's greatest call in your life and in mine is to become like Jesus, to be formed into the image of his son. Paul says in Romans 8 that before we were even born, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be shaped into his image. Jesus was the most perfect human to ever live. He was human. Jesus is our model for what humanity was meant to be under the rule of God, under the hand and the influence and the spirit of God. Jesus is our model for life, all of life. He's our model. And so we've talked about three things that distinctly were present in Jesus's life that helped him live out the purposes and the plans of God for him. The first one is scripture. He came under the authority of scripture. Jesus immersed his life in scripture and was shaped by scripture. Jesus didn't stand over scripture to demand that scripture meet his needs and his interpretation. Jesus was shaped by scripture. That's one huge marker of his life. The second thing that marked Jesus's life was he invested his life intentionally into spiritual rhythms and practices. You could use spiritual disciplines, holy habits, whatever term you've used. Jesus's life was shaped by spiritual practices and rhythms in his life. And the third thing that marked Jesus's life was a total dependence on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. We've said this before, but I just want to repeat it quickly. Jesus did not use his divinity as kind of an ace in his sleeve to heal anyone, to cast any demon out, to perform any miracle. He didn't. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. He did not access his divinity. He didn't take a shortcut that you and I don't have access to. Just read Philippians 2, other passages in scripture. Jesus fully embraced every limitation of humanity, everyone. Willingly, he humbled himself and subjected himself to every human limitation. And the, the vehicle, the presence, and the power that Jesus used on the earth was the Holy Spirit's, not his own, not his godness. So that means everything that Jesus did, because we're filled with the same Holy Spirit, we don't get a junior one or a half Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit for dummies. Maybe I have that one, but like we don't, we don't have a less than. Paul said the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 
If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have invited his lordship and authority in your life, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You have the same access to God that he did. The same spirit, you have all of the tools, I have all of the tools to fully live out God's vision and calling for my life in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes. The reason we're gonna begin talking about the Holy Spirit is because this is the most abstract for many of us. And in my own way and in my own fashion, I feel like I have to make this more complicated than it really is. So we're gonna start not on the Holy Spirit, but on how you view the universe. How, so here's a question. How do you view the universe? There's two dominant ways that we look at the universe. The first way is the material or mechanical way. That's the first way. So the universe is governed by natural laws, and there are natural laws. The mechanical view of the universe, even if God created the universe, He has stepped back from the universe and everything in our universe runs like a clock through its own laws and mechanical laws of physics and gravity, thermodynamics and all of these things. That would be a material or a mechanical view of the universe. It's a closed system, just like a clock is. A clock has everything it needs to keep running, to keep ticking and one dominant view of the universe is that God created it and then sort of just, you know, sent it out and stepped away from it and that God is not really engaged in it at all. It's all of his natural laws that are at work and are at play. That's one dominant way to view the universe. The second way is organic. In the organic way of viewing the universe, Of course, there are still natural laws at play. Gravity still exists. Uh, The laws of physics still exist. All of those are at play, but there's an equal reality in the organic view of the universe. And this equal reality to the natural laws is that there are sentient beings. There are beings who have will and emotion and volition, who have intelligence. There are supernatural beings with intelligence, sentient beings, who interact with what is natural. Those supernatural beings interact with each other. God interacts with angels and demons Angels interact with demons. There's a cross interaction with these intelligent, supernatural beings. And in the organic view, those intelligent, supernatural beings interact with humanity and the earth. They can impose their will. They can lead and direct. They can show up and influence. So the organic view of the universe says that yes, there are natural laws, but there is an equal reality that we cannot see that is spiritual. 
It's supernatural. And that reality interacts with the natural all the time. So, you don't have to answer out loud, but where do you land with that? How do you view the universe? The way that you answer that will dramatically impact your theology of the Holy Spirit and your knowledge of him. Not your information about him. You can get that in scripture. That's easy to find. But the way that you answer that will dramatically impact how you know the Holy Spirit, how you experience him. So either there are a series of natural laws that God does not violate, never steps into or never interrupts. He just lets things run like a clock. And your human will and your choice is the only determining factor in what happens with good and evil, with right and wrong. God doesn't violate those things. He never interacts with it. It's mechanically run. Or you believe there are natural laws, but there is a spiritual, supernatural reality that is just as real. That our universe is not just physically bound, but it is also spiritual. It's not just a closed mechanical system, but it is open. And there is interaction going on between the spiritual and the natural all the time. I want to submit to you that the scriptural view of the universe is organic, not mechanical. The Bible would not affirm a mechanical understanding of the universe. We see that right from Genesis 1, verse 1, to Revelation 22. All through scripture, the Bible affirms and teaches an organic view of the universe. The problem is that our, specifically our Western church has been so heavily influenced by the Enlightenment that the church, our Western church, North and South, mostly North America, our Western church, Europe too, the problem is that we actually, so we believe in scripture. Theoretically, we believe that there is a spiritual and a natural, but functionally, we're atheists. We function like naturalists. We function in our everyday life as Christians almost entirely in the natural almost in exclusively in the natural. And there's streams of the church even that would suggest anything supernatural is suspicious. That anything that delves into the supernatural is to be avoided, is to be explained away by reason or logic. We are so pervasively influenced by the enlightenment to our destruction as a church. For, for all of the good that came of the Enlightenment, the church adopted some of the worst theology imaginable because of the Enlightenment. So much of our theology since the Enlightenment is rooted in the fear and insecurity of being left behind the prevailing thinking of the day. 
when, when philosophers like Descartes and other people came on the scene and they started talking about logic and reason and deduction and all of these things, the church went, whoa, wait a minute. Like, like we have logic, we have reason, and in our insecurity, we totally dropped the supernatural, organic view of the universe so that we would not be seen as inferior or intellectually less than the great philosophers of the 17th and 18th century. And as a church, we've, we bought this lock, stock, and barrel. Our problem is that we say we believe scripture, but our actual everyday reality is essentially atheistic. In practice, in function, we live like there's no supernatural realm. And I'm not saying I, I'm somehow on a different level here. <laughs> These are things I wrestle with. The next question I would ask you is how much of your spiritual life is actually spiritual? How much of your walk with Jesus is not totally dependent on the natural? It's just a question I wanna leave with you. If we're gonna understand the Holy Spirit, we actually have to get some of this straight first. Because in the, in the humanistic, material, mechanical view, the Holy Spirit just carries out certain assignments from God. He just fulfills certain tasks from God. He's not an intelligent, sentient, supernatural being living in us that we are called to know. He's just a power or a force or an energy. The biblical worldview is organic. I would want to submit this thought to you. There is ongoing and persistent interference in the natural by the supernatural realm. And I want to submit to you that that is the norm, not the exception. What you and I fail to realize and to see does not the, negate the reality that the norm for God, the norm for the supernatural is to persistently interrupt and interact with the natural. We just totally miss it. And one of the reasons we miss it is because we've got our categories all backwards. We think in entirely naturalistic, humanistic, physical ways. And so we miss the spiritual altogether. Our Christian practice, our devotional life is almost entirely rooted in human achievement, in human capacity. So again, you might wonder, well, what, what in the why, why are you overcomplicating this, Andrew? <laughs> Brenda, don't, don't give me the eyes like that. All right. So I told you, I have a tendency to overcomplicate. I have to like take the whole thing apart, the whole bicycle apart to understand how it's made. The problem is I forget which bolt goes where sometimes. So I don't have a good system for cataloging things. That's why I only go so far with mechanics. Even I was attempting to fix my own brakes on my truck this week, and there was only four bolts I had to take off. Could I remember right away where they went? No, I couldn't. So I got to work on that, but... 
I kind of need to take things all the way apart to figure it out. So why is this important? Why would I even start in this place? The reason it's so important is because you hear me, us, we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. We would profess that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're filled by the Holy Spirit. We're be, being filled by the Holy Spirit, but we function almost entirely outside of the Holy Spirit's realm. Our faith is rooted in what is natural, not what is supernatural. I was listening to a book that I hadn't read in 20 years from Rick Joyner. It's called, uh, what is it called? I just lost it. The Final Quest. And I read this back in the 90s. This was based on a vision he had. And one of the things that just intrigued me is in this in this vision that he's having, he's interacting with the supernatural and this angel wisdom that he's interacting with says, you don't see me more now. You don't understand me more now because I've come to you. You're seeing me with more clarity because you've come to me. You've entered into my space. You've entered into my realm. And I think that, isn't that so true? Like, so much of our life, we're asking God to come into our space. And he has through Jesus and all of these things. I'm not negating that. But so much of our Christian life is demanding that God meet us on our terms instead of entering into his space. Like Paul says in Ephesians, we can go boldly before the throne of grace because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. There's a spiritual reality to your life that you're not even accessing. And our knowledge of the Holy Spirit is so limited because we demand him to come in our natural, rational, reasonable sort of ways, but we don't enter into his domain and his realm and his reality. And a lot of that is hinged on how we view the universe. I think the reason we don't know him, the reason in part that we can't recognize his voice or the reason we can't distinguish his presence, the reason that you don't and I don't often have a deep friendship with him is that we almost exclusively operate with him in a mechanical, humanistic way in a mechanical, material way. We have our formulas, we have our sort of natural laws of our spiritual life. So there's a sad irony at play. And that sad irony is that the evangelical Western church is one of the most anti-supernatural groups of people on the earth. (laughs) Just think about it, it's true. I'm a part of it. Our Western evangelical church is one of the most anti-supernatural groups of people on the earth. And we wonder why in our culture people are running to mediums, running to to have their palms read, running to to, um, interact with tarot cards, running to the occult. We're wondering because the church 
is not being the church and not offering them a pathway into the supernatural realities of the kingdom. We just give them kind of the natural, a one-dimensional understanding and relationship with God. And yet we hold these keys as Jesus holds these keys of the kingdom. We have access to the very throne, the heart of everything that's been created in heavenly places and on the earth. We have access to that place and we don't even go there. We don't utilize it. We don't invite people into the supernatural reality of the kingdom of God. We just tell them to get better and to brush up on their devotions and their Bible reading and just hope for the best. The biblical worldview teaches us that there are three essential types of spirit. And we're gonna just blaze through this. The first type of spirit is the human spirit. The Bible uses soul and spirit interchangeably most of the time. And so God says that he's made us in his image. We are a living being, a living soul. You have a spirit. The first kind of spirit that the Bible talks about is the human spirit. The second kind of spirit that the Bible talks about are demonic spirits. Unholy power. Satan and his kingdom. The demonic realm. And the third kind of spirit the Bible talks about is the spirit of God. His kingdom, the angelic kingdom. So what we have to get straight first is that the Bible teaches that we are inherently spiritual beings, not just physical beings. So why is, why is getting close to God so difficult then? Why is seeing this so difficult? Because there are two other categories of spiritual beings that are vying for your worship and your attention. And we can't separate, we can't distinguish the two often. Often we have no idea whether it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us, the tacos we had last night, or the devil. We don't know. The reason things are hard and so difficult is that there's a resistance, a spiritual resistance to you knowing the nature and the character of God, to you growing to become like Jesus. There are rational, intelligent, supernatural beings that are trying to undermine the purposes and plans of God in your life and in my life. I wanna to submit to you this idea. So this begins to touch onto a, a touchy subject in some churches, and that's the value of experience. What do you mean, Andrew, that we're to experience God? What do you mean that we're to kind of sort out what these experiences are? Are, are? There are streams of the church that say anything experiential is suspicious and must be disregarded. The question I want to leave with you is the goal of the, this is a statement, not a question. The goal of the Christian life is not to dismiss experiences. Our goal in this church is not to, to, uh, you know, to quench or, or shut down or dismiss any spiritual experience. Here's what our goal is. 
Our goal is to evaluate the source of that experience. So we gotta get something straight here, right? God and the Holy Spirit, they're the same. We'll get to that later. The Holy Spirit is not the only one with a design and a plan for your life. The Holy Spirit is not the only spiritual being that has a plan and a purpose for your life. Satan does. So how are you gonna know what's what? How are you gonna evaluate what's what? We have to learn how to step into this supernatural realm and learn how to evaluate our experiences. I wanna just, we're not gonna go into this in detail. I think one of the best ways that we can evaluate the source of experience is, was uh, coined by Wesley. If you have done any studying, it's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. <laughs> and so here's how Wesley suggested we evaluate the source of spiritual experiences to determine where it is coming from. Number one, scripture. So scripture stands as the ultimate. I just wanna make a note here, because this is a Wesleyan quadrilateral, which means there's four areas. A lot of you are familiar with a term coined, not necessarily by the reformers themselves, but by their followers, and that's sola scriptura. That term doesn't actually mean today what it meant to the reformers. When we say sola scripture, we mean scripture alone, but that's not what the reformers meant. They meant scripture as the ultimate. Reading your Bible alone is not going to be sufficient to help you in discerning the root, the place from which our spiritual experience is happening. It is the ultimate, it is the most important, it carries the most weight, but the Bible itself doesn't teach that it alone is the only place for evaluating experience. The second point on Wesleyan's quadrilateral is tradition. Tradition meaning how have believers for thousands of years understood this? How have they interpreted these experiences? What was present in the early church? in the early church fathers, what was happening in the first 300 years of the church? What was happening in the time of the desert fathers and mothers as people went out into the desert to deepen their faith? What was going on? What was happening during the Reformation? How has the church historically understood this? You see, you can take scripture and you can twist it into whatever you want. You can pull it out of context you can distort it, you can do whatever you want with it. If you are going to say that, you know, me sitting here with my Bible, I am the only interpretive authority in understanding what I'm reading here. No, you're not. There are men and women of deep faith for thousands of years who have been interpreting and leaning into these supernatural realities, and they have something to say to us. So we use scripture, we use history and tradition. The third thing on this is we use experience. What have others experienced with this? How do I 
understand what I'm experiencing through the lens of others. The fourth is reason. And this is not scientific, mechanical, you know, uh, reason. This means, can I think through this? Can I make sense of this? This is not in a lab, kind of like in a sterile environment. It means, you know, can I actually work this out? Can I wrestle with this? Can I wrestle this down? And Wesley said, those are the four things that help us evaluate the source of spiritual experiences. So again, those three categories. The Bible talks about the human spirit. Genesis 2-7, I just want to read a couple things to you. The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The Hebrew word for person is nephesh, which means soul or spirit. We are spiritual beings. In the book of Job, one of Job's friends, Elihu, says this in Job 32. But there is a spirit within people the breath of the Almighty within them that makes them intelligent. So this passage in Job is saying when God breathed into man, he breathed his spirit into man. We are spiritual beings. Ecclesiastes 12.7, for the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Zechariah 12 verse 1, this message is concerning the fate of Israel. This is a prophetic message coming to Israel. This message is from the Lord who stretched out the heavens. He laid the foundations of the earth and formed the human spirit. So your being is spiritual, not just natural. That's what the Bible teaches. The second category, demonic spirits. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. This is Paul teaching. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. So I want you to underline or highlight this next statement of Paul's. So you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. What were you doing? Obeying the devil the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Underline this, he, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Paul says all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. What is Paul saying? He's saying that without Jesus' lordship in your life, you're not only just driven by your human desires and passion, there's a spiritual being behind that. There's a spiritual being that is behind those desires and passions in your life. We all used to follow our passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, but our very nature was uh, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like anyone else. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. 
I want you to underline this. They will follow deceptive what? Spirits and teachings that come from demons. So the Bible is laying out to us sort of the, the, the rules of the battleground. You're spiritual. You have a spirit. You're a spiritual being. But there is malevolent spiritual beings. There is demonic spiritual beings that are sentient, they're, they're, they're intelligent, and they're looking to influence your life. They're looking to actually undermine the call of God in your life and the purposes and plans of God on your life. Here's what Jesus said about this sort of reality. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. Demonic spirits want to reside in you. They, want, they, they don't want to just harass you. They do do that. They want a controlling interest in your life. But I want to remind you, back to Ephesians 2, what does Paul say the condition of humanity is outside of Jesus? He says, without the life of the Holy Spirit in you, you are dead. Here's, uh, this is going to sound harsh. Maybe some of you will take offense to this. I don't mean to cause you offense. But there is no category on earth of in between God and the devil. There's no just good people who are inherently good by nature. Without the Holy Spirit living in you, you are dead spiritually. You're not on life support. You're not a work in progress. You're not a hopeful maybe. You are spiritually dead. And Paul says that the world is under the controlling influence of the devil. He's the spirit behind everything that is working to bring destruction in your life and on the earth. And there's a spiritual reality to that. People aren't just good people. You're not just a good philanthropist. You're not just, you know, good and generous to the poor. And that makes you good. You're spiritually dead without the Holy Spirit living in you. Here's the juxtaposition that those without Jesus feel like they're fully alive, but they're living in a spiritual death that will go on for eternity. Those with Jesus feel like we're dead and being crucified every day, but that death will bring life one day and we will live in the reality of the kingdom of God and his life. How do you view your life in the universe and the world around you? Romans 6, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead. You were dead. Not on life support. Dead. But now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. The third category, the Holy Spirit. I wanna just end with this. As our introduction to the Holy Spirit. John 6, the Spirit alone gives us eternal life. Your generosity doesn't, your compassion to the poor doesn't, 
The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's from Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, for his spirit, God's spirit, joins with our spirit to affirm we are God's children. The very first thing that you have to get settled is what spirit is controlling your life. I'm gonna say something else that may seem very offensive or harsh. But all of us sitting here today, me standing here, you sitting here, you are possessed by one of two spirits, the spirit of God or the spirit of the devil. There's no in between. You are owned, fully possessed by either the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the devil. There's no, I'm a good person. There's no, look how much I give to the poor. There's no social justice. There's nothing. You are owned. Your life is owned by an intelligent, supernatural being that's either the Holy Spirit of God or a demonic spirit. That's it. If you're a Christian, you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. You are owned by a rational, intelligent, supernatural person. And this is the Holy Spirit that we want to introduce you to in the next weeks to come. But you've got to actually get a few things squared away first. And I understand this might be really hard for some of you to hear. And again, my, my purpose is not to intentionally provoke you or, or cause you distress, but it's just to point out the reality and the truth coming from a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective. There are no just good people who are trying to make it in the world. There's only two kingdoms. And either you have submitted your life to Jesus and be and the Holy Spirit who brings life and peace and restoration and goodness, or your life is under the controlling influence of the demonic. Who wants to just go to Swish LA right now? <laughs> it's so quieted here. In the weeks to come, I want to describe for you who the Holy Spirit is. But my heart is not to just pass on information to you about him. I, and I don't know how to do, I'm agonizing actually over this. Jesus, how do we know you? How do we know the Holy Spirit better? Not just gain more information. I don't, my purpose is not that you just walk home with more Bible verses in your belt, but you begin to come into a dynamic relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. He wants to lead your life. He's got the strength that you don't have. He's got the compassion and the wisdom and the vision that you don't have. He has everything you need to actually fulfill the purposes and plans of God for your life. The question is, are you walking in relationship actually with him? 
Or is he just a person you know some things about? The Holy Spirit is God. So just as we're ending, I wanna invite you just to stand. Here's a little bit of a, and Liz, you could come. I always feel like it's better with keys. <laughs> just as we close. I wanna leave you with just a few, a few of the realities of the Holy Spirit, his interaction, his nature in your life. Scripture says the Holy Spirit is the one who imparts and brings joy. He's the one. You can't fill your life with joy. He's the one who brings joy. Scripture says he's the one who imparts the love of God into your life. This unconditional, sure foundation that no matter what you've done, what you've said, what's happened to you, Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's the one who comes and makes the love of God real in your life. He carries what the Father has into your life. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who gives and imparts hope to us so that we don't lose heart so that we don't crumble under the weight and the pressure. It's the Holy Spirit who comes with all of the resources of the kingdom of God and gives us bright hope for tomorrow, strength for today and hope for tomorrow. The Holy Spirit is the one who comforts the weak. He's the one who enters into your brokenness, into your place of weakness. He's the one who sits with you. He's closer than a brother. He has all of the power you need to make it through and he's the one who identifies with your weakness today your areas of failure and defeat and brokenness he comes in and brings comfort and he's the one he's the one who empowers you for life he's the one who speaks truth and reminds you of who you are and who God is. He's the one who comes and brings conviction and stirs our hearts to turn back to God. He's the one who carries the mercy and the grace of Jesus to us when we're so desperately in need of it. He's the one who holds our head high Is he the one that's leading your life today? I just want to invite you to close your eyes. And this would be equally true if you've never actually invited Jesus into your life or you've been following him for 30 years. Here's what his invitation is to you today. To humble yourself and invite him to lead and be Lord of your life. His invitation to you today is to 
stop grasping at your own strength, to stop grasping at your own ability to plan and to provide for yourself, to stop grasping at trying to save your own life. His invitation to you today is would you invite me to be Lord, to rule and to reign in you. And so I just wanna invite you today If that's something you feel you can genuinely do, just even under the sound of your own breath right now, just between you and Jesus, to just say, Jesus, I submit to you today. I offer my life to you today. Jesus, I recognize I can't save myself. I recognize I am not good enough and I never will be. And so Jesus, I exchange all of my human productivity, all of my human strength and my human wisdom and my human desire for salvation. I exchange for myself you and I invite you to come and rule and reign in me. Whether you've been in church your whole life or today's your first time, this is a daily prayer of mine. Jesus, would you rule and reign in me? And I just want to invite you even in this moment to say, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you fill me again? Would you make yourself real to me today? I want you just to follow that up by saying, I trust you with my life. And lastly, if you can, I want you to ask him, Holy Spirit, would you allow me to know you? I don't want information about you. I don't want just doctrine or theology. I want to know you. Father, I ask that you, in this place, I ask that you would release the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would pour out on every heart and every life here, the ministry, the very real presence of the Holy Spirit of God. I ask that you would saturate our being right now with the reality of the kingdom. I ask Holy Spirit that you would draw near and close to every person under the sound of my voice, that your nature and your goodness and your life would be felt and experienced. The reality of your presence would be known in a new and powerful way. We need you, we need your life in us. You are living water for our thirsty soul. You are wind and you are fire. You are the breath of the Almighty that gives us life. And so we ask for you. We ask to know you. Teach us through this series about you. We want to encounter you in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.